Hi, everyone. I'm investigative journalist Kylie Lowe, and I'm here to tell you about my weekly podcast, Dark Down East. Each episode, I take you to my home in New England, where we truly get to know the people at the center of the cases we dive into. Join me and dig into some cases you won't hear about anywhere else. Listen to new episodes of Dark Down East every Thursday, or check out the extensive catalog of existing episodes now, wherever you listen to podcasts. You know, prosecutors said and police say that you're an angry, controlling guy who wants his way and becomes violent when he doesn't get it. If I was a controlling guy, I would not have my two daughters going to college, driving their own self, having a car. My daughter stood in court and lied through her teeth. As he faced me through a thick pane of Texas prison glass, Ali Ersan still wouldn't admit he had done anything wrong. Over the years, I've interviewed plenty of criminals, most of them murderers. Those conversations always make me think about good and evil and about the false steps that can so quickly take you from one to the other. There's no question, most people are basically decent, honest. But the older I get, the more often I run into outliers, people who don't seem to have empathy, people who apparently don't feel remorse, people who don't look back and wonder, how could I have done that? People like Ali Ersan. I had lots of questions for him, not only about the murders of Gelleray and Cody, but also about another homicide in his past. I'm Josh Mankiewicz, and this is the final episode of Motive for Murder, a podcast from Dateline. It would be difficult for investigators to decipher what was driving Ali Ersan. They thought they had evidence putting Ersan near the scene of Gallery's shooting, specifically that fateful traffic stop we told you about in the last episode. Still, it seemed like a stretch to think a phone call could be the connection between Ersan and Gallery. He had never met her. They'd only spoken briefly on the phone a couple of times. Ersan wanted Galloway to convince his daughter to come home, and Galloway was having none of it. She probably wasn't terribly polite on the phone, but that was the extent of their interaction. And even though Ersan's name was raised early on as a possible suspect, it really wasn't enough for law enforcement to pursue. Imagine how many people would be killed in this country if being rude on the phone was enough to get you murdered. When it came to Cody Beaver's murder, the motive seemed more straightforward. Ali Ersan simply did not want to see his daughter married to Cody. Except if Ersan had executed his son-in-law, he'd done a good job covering his tracks. There wasn't a shred of physical evidence to connect him to that crime scene. So the task force had stayed on Ersan, quietly and covertly watching the family home. Here's FBI Special Agent Carlos Acosta again. One of our surveillance teams contacted me, and they informed me that they had observed two of Ali's sons accessing an area of the roof line of the house, the rear of the house, which they believe was a hidden compartment. A 
Acosta says that sighting led to a third search warrant. So we go to and we search the roof. We actually take off part of the roof. And we cannot find, well, anything what we were looking for. You didn't find a hidden compartment. We didn't find a hidden compartment. Disappointing? Sure. But the warrant gave them wide discretion. And they kept looking. Our search teams did find a hidden area under the faucet of the roof that removed a screen and found two GPS units used to, to get from one location to the other. Those portable GPS units, the kind you used to put on your dashboard before every car and every iPhone could supply directions. And we submitted those to the Greater Houston Regional Computer Forensic Lab and they were able of, on one of the units to recover data which put that unit not only to the exact location, but within the same date and time period of the Cody murder. And it's a roadmap from Ollie's house to Cody's house on the day of the murder. The day of the murder actually departs Ollie's primary residence all the way to the apartment where uh, Cody's murdered. The GPS units showed someone making a trip from the Ursan home to Cody and Nezreen's home on the day of Cody's murder at what police believed was also the time of the murder. It was a telltale digital record, a missing piece of the puzzle that was suddenly glaringly visible. And it tipped the Cody Beaver's murder case in the direction investigators needed. Sergeant Doucet knew it. That gets in arrest warrant. That got charges on him, yes. Up for murder. Correct. Yes. Ursan was now indicted for both Galloway and Cody's murders. And it was a capital case, meaning, if convicted, he could face the death penalty. And the DA said Ursan had help. His wife, Shmoo, and their son, Nassim, were also indicted for murder. Prosecutors still had to make a convincing case for his guilt and tell an improbable story of how the two murders were connected. When the trial began, Kathy Sultani accompanied Galloway's parents to court. She vividly remembers the tension and fear. You went to the trial every day, mm -hmm. which was how many days? Almost two months, yes, two months. And you did that, why? I mean, I don't know. That's loyalty. Yeah, I couldn't live with them, you know. And I had to translate the whole thing, so I would hear it in English, then we would go home, I would go over the whole day. <laughs> Again, for her parents. So for her parents, in case they—I mean—they understand English, especially the dad does more. So. So you're living every day twice, basically. Yes. Mm -hmm. Galloway and Cody were murdered in 2012. It took six years for Ali Ursan to face a jury. On July 25, 2018, it was 91 degrees and humid in Houston, as the People versus Ali Ursan began. Each day, that jury of eight men and four women listened as prosecutors put on their case. Corey and Cody's older brother, Adam, was there. What was that like to go to the trial and see Ali Ersan sitting right there? 
he's an evil man. I didn't realize how sinister and evil he is. So he's worse than you expected. I'm being serious when I say he's worse than Charles Manson. He's incredibly evil and calculating and very deliberate with what he was doing, but he would try and intimidate people in the gallery. He would, I, I, even he, while he's on trial for even murder. Even while he's on trial for murder. At one point during the trial, he built a paper pinwheel. We were seeing graphic photos of the murder scenes and they're being projected up on the screen. He wouldn't even look at them and he would just spin this paper pinwheel. Kathy Sultani and Gallery's parents said they felt Ursan's gaze in the courtroom and it shook them. Well, the first day we walked into the courtroom, the three of us, I mean, we were holding hands, the three of us, her parents and myself. And we just, for a second when we saw him sitting there and staring, he was staring at her parents. He was looking at them. I don't know how he could look at them like that. And the three of us, it felt like we were stuck to the ground for a second. If the evidence was any indication, they had reason to be scared. Prosecutors argued items found at the Ursan compound showed him hunting his victims like prey. They presented stacks of paper found under a sofa cushion at the Ursan home. Pages upon pages of printed out internet searches on Shirley, on Corey, Cody, and Galloway. Information on some of the tiniest details of their lives. Special Prosecutor Anna Emmons. Then when they, they went inside that house, they found what we referred to as a stalking packet, which showed all of the evidence that they were actually stalking. And they were looking for these people. Like and what? How they found like what specifically? Their addresses, addresses of family members, um, everything that they had done, buying trackers. Now, remember that envelope we told you about in the last episode? Investigators found it in Ursan's car marked with scribbles, numbers, and words that didn't make sense at the time. After some police work, those scribbles came to life and told a frightening story. Some of the seemingly random numbers and letters on the envelope turned out to be the street address for Galloway's former home. It was still listed on her driver's license at the time of her murder. Others were matched to license plate information for a car that Cody had once rented after his was vandalized. Prosecutors said it was all proof that Ursan was stalking Cody and Nezreen. Suddenly, those scribbles became significant evidence because they tied both murders together, linking Galloway and Cody to Ali Ursan. Or did they? At the same time, it was all circumstantial. Nezreen identified the handwriting on the envelope as being her father's, but there was nothing to prove that. There were also no fingerprints, no DNA, no firearms analysis to connect Ursan to the killings. Prosecutors would need something else, or someone else, to put the puzzle together. Nezreen Ursan said she knew exactly how scary her father, Ali Ursan, could be. 
Our producer, Ann Priceman, has spoken with Nazarene and met with her in person. Everybody had gave us the impression she was cowering and terrified at all times, which obviously what she'd endured. You could understand that. You could understand the pain and fear she carries with her. But as a person, she's dynamic. She's strong, like has a lot of verve to her. When when people tend to describe somebody as terrified, they describe them it's, you, it's, you get this feeling of this meek little mouse. Yeah, she's scared. She's scared, but she's got a lot of strength to her. That strength was what Nezreen needed to help bring her father to justice for murdering her husband. She told her story where it counts most, in a courtroom. Special Prosecutor Anna Emmons remembers when Nezreen took the stand. It was very emotional for Nazarene to get on the stand. She, um, just being in the same room again with her father, who she knows killed her friend and her husband. And, and she's how far away from him? In the courtroom we were in, she was very close, less than 15 feet for sure. And he's looking right at her. Looking, staring daggers at her. Absolutely. Speaking for both her friend Galloway and her husband Cody, Nazarene faced her father, endured those daggers, and testified against him. One more question hung over these proceedings. Did Ali Ersan's Muslim faith have anything to do with this? Many have referred to these murders as honor killings. That's a twisted and fairly rare practice in which a person, usually a woman, is killed for bringing a perceived shame to herself or her family. Something like marrying outside the faith. To be clear, this was not Ursan's defense. He did not claim the murders were justified. He maintained he didn't do it, that he was not responsible for either crime. Of course, Nazreen was raised Muslim. Cody Beavers was Christian. And that clearly was an issue for Ali Ursan. Except in actual honor killings, it's almost always the family member who's killed, not a third party. So these murders didn't fit the definition of honor killing. And prosecutors confronted that issue head on. He wanted to kill all of those involved in bringing shame and dishonor in his mind to his family. Here's what special prosecutor John Stevenson told the jury. This is one man and one family's extremist views that were taken to the extreme and led to the deaths of two innocent people. Yalare Bagarzadeh, and Cody Beavers. One of the things you talked about in opening arguments is how this isn't really representative of Islam and how you're not putting the Muslim religion on trial. This is the way Ali Ersan interpreted religion. Right, just one man's crazy beliefs and how he used those to stalk and murder innocent people. Witness by witness, the prosecution built a solid, if not airtight, case until Shmoo, Ali Ersan's second wife. Like her husband, she was in lockup, awaiting her own trial on murder charges. Just days before her husband's trial, prosecutors dropped by for a talk. Special Prosecutor Anna Emmons said her team was pretty clear about Shmoo's options. 
We went and visited her in the jail with her attorney, and we laid out an opportunity for her and say, you have an opportunity here to finally stand up for yourself. He's left you, and the only person that can help you is yourself. And it's time that the truth comes out. Think about it. Let us know. We're going to go forward on your case regardless. But come back and tell us what you think about it. And within a day, we got called by her attorney. Shmoo flipped on her husband. And as the state's star witness, her testimony on the stand was as memorable as it was devastating. Here is Shmoo's story of how the cold-blooded killings of Galloway and Cody played out. She told the jury how Ursan had stalked Nezreen, Cody, and their family. She said Ursan forced his own family to help him. And that phone call between Ali, Ursan, and Galloway? Well, Shmoo testified she heard it all because the call was on speaker. And she was there when the call ended. After Galloway stood up to Ursan, Shmoo described how she heard him say, Iranian bitch. Then he hung up and told Shmoo, Galloway needs to go. Shmoo also said she was there the night Galloway was murdered, and that she, her husband, and their eldest son, Nassim, were all in the car, following Galloway from location to location. In court, Shmoo recounted how Ursan got out of the car with Nassim. At that point, she said her husband pressured their then 18-year-old son into pulling the trigger. Nassim, she said, shot Galloway at her husband's direction. The day Cody was killed, Shmoo said she had again been driving around with her husband and Nassim. She said she waited in the car during the murder in the pre-dawn darkness. And she told jurors her husband's plan didn't stop at Galloway and Cody. According to Shmoo, the plan was also to kill Corey Beavers, his mother Shirley, and finally Nezreen. Special Prosecutor Marie Prim. She uh, was very good at articulating what he was thinking and why he was there. It was very chilling at how cold and she delivered what she was saying. It was not She was not a typical witness. In, in what sense? Most times when you make a deal with a witness or you have a cooperating co-defendant, they try to paint themselves in the best possible light. They don't want to look like the bad guy. And so they're maybe a little reluctant. Maybe they don't tell as good a story. Well, they might say, well, he was really bad, but I was telling him not to do that. Or somehow try to absolve themselves of some of the degree of guilt that exists. Shamu didn't do that. No, she, in fact, was very clear at the beginning. She wanted all these people to die. She was happy for them all to die. And there was one final chilling detail Shmoo gave to the jury. She witnessed her husband watching news coverage of the murders. He wanted to watch it, she said, because his achievement made him proud. Shmoo said he was smiling. With everything going on right now, a lot of people are asking if it's even possible to buy life insurance at all. The short answer is yes, you can buy life insurance during a pandemic. And if you have loved ones depending on your income, you probably should. 
As an insurance marketplace, Policy Genius is in contact with the life insurance companies on their platform every day. They're keeping track of all the changes in the market so you don't have to. They can get you covered quickly and for the best price. Here's how it works. Policy Genius compares quotes from the top life insurance companies in one place. It takes just a few minutes to compare quotes to find your best price. You could save 1500 or more a year by using Policy Genius to compare. And once you apply, the Policy Genius team will handle all the paperwork for free. So if you're one of the many people looking to buy life insurance right now, but you're not sure where to start, head to PolicyGenius.com. Policy Genius will help you find the best rate and handle the process completely. They'll get you and your family protected and hopefully give you one less thing to worry about. It's easy to forget, but podcasts are businesses too. Our friends at Wondery, they're our podcasting partner, do all kinds of businessy stuff, like shipping packages. In theory, shipping seems easy, but keeping track of who gets what, which shipping carrier to use, and whether or not you're getting the best rate is a lot, especially now that businesses must adapt to meet the demands of our new delivery culture. That's why Wondery uses ShipStation. It's the fastest and most affordable way to get your packages where they need to go, locally or globally. Whether you're selling through Amazon, Etsy, or your own website, ShipStation brings all the orders into one simple interface, making them really easy to manage from any device. ShipStation even helps you figure out the best way to ship every package and create shipping labels for all the major carriers, including USPS, FedEx, and UPS. They even offer the same postage discounts, usually reserved for Fortune 500 companies. Right now, listeners of Motive for Murder get to try ShipStation free for 60 days when you use our offer code MOTIVE. See why ShipStation is rated number one by online sellers. Just visit ShipStation.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in MOTIVE. That's ShipStation.com, offer code MOTIVE. ShipStation.com, make ship happen. For true crime fans, nothing is more chilling than watching Dateline. Have you ever seen such a thing before? For podcast fans, nothing is more chilling than listening. What goes through your mind when you make a discovery like that? And when you subscribe to Dateline Premium, it gets even better. Excuse me if I sound a little skeptical. Every episode is ad-free. Ooh, wow. So this could be your ace in the hole. And not just ad-free, you also get early access to new intriguing mysteries and exclusive bonus content. So what were you afraid of? Dateline Premium on Apple Podcasts. Subscribe now. You ready for what's coming? After Shmoo finished testifying, the prosecution rested. Then it was Ali Ersan's turn. In his own defense, Ersan took the stand and, to almost no one's surprise, denied everything. Okay. According to Ersan, the accusations against him were all made up by police and by his own relatives who were out to get him. At Dateline, we always try to sit down with everyone in every story. In this case, that would mean looking Ali Ersan in the eye and asking him about the crimes, both bloodless and bloody, of which he'd been accused. So we asked him for an interview, and he agreed. It happened in the heat of the summer, 
in a tightly run facility of the Texas Department of Criminal Justice. Since we are talking about Dateline here, the first thing I noticed was that I'd been there before, inside the wire at that same facility. That was for a different case, another accused Texas killer. Upon entering, you as a reporter are personally searched, along with the gear the camera crew brings in. You're allowed no phones, no briefcase, no makeup, just a pad and a pen, and you are thoroughly patted down. If you're there for a TV interview, it's just you and the two-person camera crew. My producer, Ann, had to wait in the parking lot. Now, I've covered plenty of presidential and campaign events over the years, and I can tell you, the U.S. Secret Service has nothing on the Texas prison system. After the search, you're taken across the yard to a worn cinder block room where prisoners meet with their attorneys and sometimes with their families as well. You sit facing a glass cubicle. The person you're there to meet sits opposite you, behind the glass. And you communicate via old-style telephone handsets. You're the star of your own noir film. The crew set up our Dateline cameras. And then Ali Ersan was brought in, wearing Texas prison white. The deal is that you have an hour for the interview. Mr. Ersan began by explaining how he was the victim in all of this. Okay. And the law enforcement and the government and the United States right now, as of what they did to me, they, they bullied, blackmailed, and intimidate every person that put me here. Your wife, your nephew, your daughter, who all testified against you, you think that only happened because they were intimidated? Yes. They were forced. If, if you don't do it, we're going to get you. Ursan told me it was Nezreen who was violent and out of control. He said she was going to wipe out anyone who stood in her way. So Nezreen's the real villain here. I have no idea. Yes, she is. Yes, she is. Nezreen is the villain. Yes, sir. Nezreen was pretty clearly afraid of you and didn't want anything to do with you well, and wanted you to leave her alone. And if you had left her alone, you probably wouldn't be in here. I, look... Uh, if, if the police did not use the, the, the KGB tactic, I would not be here. Yeah, so you, you didn't murder Cody Beaver. No, I did not. So the fact that you stalked him in Nazreen, that you I talked to the neighbors, that you not... tried to find out where they were living, that you clearly hated the fact that your daughter had married this guy and that you saw that as a, as a sort of personal offense against you and your family, that's all a coincidence. I did not kill the guy. I never saw him face to face, never saw him except for, uh, in pictures. And people who testified that you did and that you were there. To be honest, it was kind of hard to get a word in edgewise. They're lying because they were intimidated. I was, look, I was after my daughter, I tried to establish communication, probably was the wrong, uh, the wrong place and the wrong time, but I did not kill the guy. Investigators found GPS units, GPS, which showed a route from your house to where Cody was murdered on the day he was murdered. Let, let, let me explain something to you. In my house, I was not the only driver. The GPS units show that someone went from your house to Cody's house on the day he was killed. If that wasn't you, who that, was it? I have no idea. I have no idea. Over the years, I've noticed the accused murderers I've interviewed usually have one thing in common, and it's this. 
By the time they're sitting across from me, they're on their best behavior as they roll out the story of how this is all one big mistake. I'm not that guy. I'm no killer. I don't have murder in me. And there's one thing I hear all the time. I'm being framed. Some of those very familiar themes definitely came through in my conversation with Ali Ersan. What was new was his unconcealed fury, a white-hot rage that threatened to melt the glass separating us. If Ali Ersan was trying to convince me that he's a great guy who could never be angry enough to commit a murder, well, he might have played this wrong. Here he is talking about Cody, his daughter's husband, shot seven times after walking his new wife to her car. I have nothing to do with him. I am not sorry that he died. To hell, he can go straight to hell. But I didn't kill him. I did not kill the guy. I had nothing to do with him. Why can he go straight to hell? Because because he disrupted my family. Because when I was overseas... Uh, Ali Ersan wants you to know he's in trouble because of his love for family. Nazreen left. He pursued her. Law enforcement took notice. And under legal pressure, his family turned against him. That's one way to tell it. Here's another. This story isn't just one of family. It's also about women, about the roles they play in their families and in this world. Specifically, it's about two friends, Nezreen and Galloway, women Ali Ersan sought to control, both of whom instead stood up to him in defiance. And it's about his wife, Shmu, whose testimony against him was so crucial. In our interview, Ali Ersan and I had a conversation about women and what he saw as their betrayal of him. However... The devil is not dead. And I'll tell you what. The woman is more powerful than a devil. They said the, when the angel's wings break, he cannot fly anymore. But when the woman's wings break, she still can fly on a broom. Has it ever occurred to you that maybe you're wrong about where women are in society? No. A woman is, is the main thing in society. She is the main thing. Without her, no society. And without her, society can be destroyed. 60 minutes after we began speaking, we were headed back out. It was quite an hour. I'd never experienced anything like it before. What was crystal clear was that time behind Texas bars had not changed Ali Ersan one bit. His only regret appeared to be that, in his view, his family had sold him out. As we said, his trial began June 25, 2018. One month later, on July 26th, jurors settled in to deliberate. They wouldn't take long. In fact, it was about 35 minutes. Less time than it would have taken the Urson family to drive home after Galloway's murder. Kathy was with Galloway's parents in court when the jury emerged. It was amazing. It was, it's so strange though. You think, okay, now the verdict is in, but then nothing changes really. Yeah. Well, that's the mistake a lot of people make. Like that, mm -hmm. that verdict doesn't bring your friend back. No. It's not a time machine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Corey and Cody's brother Adam was also there for the verdict. Guilty on two counts of capital murder. You look at Ali during that time? Oh, yeah. I looked at him many times. Just to let him know you're where you need to be right now. It had been six years since Galeray Bagarzadeh's murder. That's when this long, slow march to justice began. And finally, families, investigators, and prosecutors believed they had an answer. When they're trying to prove a murder case in Texas or anywhere else, prosecutors are not required to provide a motive to a jury. And yet, jurors, not unlike podcast listeners or Dateline fans, usually want to understand the whole story. Not just the who and the what, but the why. In court, prosecutors argued it all came down to Ali Ersan's rage after his daughter defied him by running away and marrying Cody Beavers. And then his wounded ego when Gallery spoke sharply to him. And being spoken to like that by a young woman, even over the telephone, was enough to make Ali Ersan furious. And so his motive was finally out in the open. It wasn't love. It wasn't money. It was pride. It's just a man's pride being walked all over by a tiny woman. That was his ego that she stepped all over. It has nothing to do with religion. I really strongly believe that. But in a way, Ali Ursan's motive had something to do with love, too. You'll remember Cody's wedding band, taken off his ring finger after his murder and switched to another finger. It was puzzling and provocative at the time. In hindsight now, it made complete sense. This was about pride, but also that love between Nezreen and Cody Beavers. Ali Ursan wanted to stop it at all costs. Jurors would now decide his fate, life in prison without parole or death by lethal injection. During trial, they'd heard about Ursan's sinister plot to stalk and kill Galloway and Cody. As sentencing began, they heard yet another story about Ursan, one that was almost too bizarre to believe. It turns out, Ali Ursan was something of a serial son-in-law killer. In addition to Galloway and Cody, he might have committed a third murder. Although really, this would be the first murder since it happened in 1999. The scene was Montgomery County, north of Houston, where the Ursan family called home. That night, Nezreen discovered her husband's body. She mentioned this to Sergeant James Doucet. She told me of, of her oldest sister, who had married another male back in 1999 in Montgomery County. And that uh, she told me that her father had shot and killed that male at their home because he did not want him to be married to her daughter, to his eldest daughter. Ursan's eldest daughter is Nasima. In 1999, Ali Ursan shot the man she married. And that crime was prosecuted? It was not. Because? We uh, 
We looked into that case with Montgomery County Sheriff's Office, and we were advised that he had claimed it was self-defense and that it had been treated as such. According to Nazreen, Ali Ersan was furious that Nasima had married a man who practiced a different form of Islam than the Ersan family. She said Ersan lured the son-in-law to his house under the pretense of smoothing things over. That was a lie, said Nazreen. This was an ambush. Detective Jeff Wells of the Montgomery County Sheriff's Department re-examined the 1999 case. He listened to Nazreen's account. If she heard the big boom first, and then later, by nine or 10 minutes, heard the two pops of the small gun. Understanding that he was dead before yeah, those shots were, those second shots were fired. Um, how, uh, how old was Nazreen then? She was 11 in 1999. And at 11, Nazreen became the ear witness to a killing. She says her father shooed the rest of his family into another room, then invited the man over. Then, Nazreen said, her father killed his new son-in-law with a shotgun, almost as he walked in the door. And she says that's when the cover-up began. Nazreen said her father took a handgun, fired two shots into the walls and ceiling, and then planted that gun in his dead son-in-law's hand. Only then did Mr. Ersan call 911 and say he'd killed a man in self-defense. He made the phone call to, to direct police to the house. He did. Saying there's been a shooting here. There's been a shooting here. And what story does he tell when police say what happened? Uh, according to his statement, uh, basically the same, that, that uh, he was that he'd been harassing him. He came in and he hit the schmoo in the eye and uh, blacked her eye and, and uh, yeah, we started to ruckus around the house and he had to shoot him. And there was some foundation for that because Ali Ersan had carefully laid it. Prior to the, the murder itself, the um, um, Ali had filed false reports with police agencies with the sheriff's department. The victim was um, harassing the family, threatening the family. If you're wondering, there is no evidence other than Ersan's claims that his son-in-law was harassing him. It looked like self-defense. He was holding a gun, a gun which had been fired. True, it had been. Jurors heard this whole story as they weighed whether or not to sentence Ersan to death. In court, investigators admitted they'd written off the 1999 case too quickly and bought into a cover-up. That case would never have been re-examined if Galloway and Cody hadn't been killed. True. He would not have. Because he got away. He got away with Because he it. wasn't charged. And he boasted about it. The what-ifs haunt Corey and Cody's brother Adam every day, every minute. And uh, had Montgomery taken that investigation and worked it the way that they should have, Gellaray and Cody would still be alive. Join Hoda Kotfi for a brand new season of her podcast, Making Space. 
For season five, I am making space to talk to people who are providing a sense of hope and inspiration when life changes course. Uplifting conversations with inspiring individuals like NFL legend Drew Brees, singer-songwriter Ziggy Marley, and today's show co-anchor Savannah Guthrie as you have never heard her before. I found faith more viscerally, not because the bad thing didn't happen, but because it did. I promise you, like me, will leave these conversations with some wisdom for your own journey, empowered and inspired to make space in your own life. New episodes of Making Space with Hoda Kotb are released every Wednesday. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. When I met with Ali Ersan behind prison walls, I asked him about that killing back in 1999. I want to talk about your son-in-law who was killed, not Cody Beavers, the other one. All right, go ahead, yeah. Okay. Did you set that man up to be killed? No, sir, I did not. Your, your wife and your daughter testified that you essentially staged this they murder and killed your son-in-law in cold they blood. They made up this story. My wife, they told her, if you don't testify against your husband, you're going to get life in prison. The sentencing phase of the trial took another two weeks. Difficult testimony, graphic and heart-wrenching. It was enough to convince the jury Ali Ersan should be put to death. If Nezreen Ersan Beavers has any relief, it comes from knowing her father will never walk free again. Her brother Nassim took a deal and pleaded guilty to murder. He was sentenced to 40 years in prison. Her sister Nadia is accused of engaging in organized criminal activity essentially conspiring with her father in the murders. Nadia's trial still lies ahead. And Ursan's wife, Shmoo, out of custody but with charges still pending, could testify in that case. The 1999 killing won't be pursued because the man at the center of it is already on Texas death row. It's been almost two years since Ali Ursan received his death sentence. Since then, Nezreen has remained estranged from most of her family. Our producer, Ann Priceman, has spoken with her about how she's doing. I think she's working very hard to move forward. It sounds corny, but I think she's, she's not living in the sorrow of it all. She's not, that's not her everyday thought. She's coming up with ways to put it in a box and put it away. And she's figuring out life and career and all of that. And she has a support system. She has people who take care of her, and that's very good. You know, the enormity of this can't be overstated. Yeah. I mean, she ran away from her family. Her husband was killed as a result of that, as was her very good friend. It's very unusual for anyone to go through even one of those tragedies in their life. Yeah, I'm in touch with actually a few people who have survived attempts on their life, or one person in particular. We meet for dinner, and inevitably the conversation briefly will go back to the case we know each other from. And it's still there with the virtually the same passion and hatred and 
that she had when it happened. The fear's gone. There's a joy that, that the guy who tried to kill her is, is sent away. But, you know, victims of violent crime, families of victims of violent crimes are forever scarred by it. They just, they move on as best they can. The, the pain is less fresh than when it first happened, but the pain always remains and it can be reactivated, you know, by anything really. By speaking out, Nazreen did an incredibly brave thing. Without her, her father, a murderer, would likely not be in a Texas prison on death row. Everything. <laughs> just, uh, for our podcast, is to say your name and your relation to... Shirley McCormick, uh, Cody's mother. The people left behind are tough. Often they seem tougher than most. Especially the twins' mother, Shirley. She says she's doing okay. I, you know, I was a huge Dateline fan prior to Cody's murder because I just find it um, fascinating and interesting um, how the attorneys and the detectives, you know, solve the cases and take it to trial. But it's not a show you ever want to be on. You know, for obvious reasons. Um, so I didn't watch it for a while after that because I really didn't want to view other people's tragedies, you know, because it's too close to home. But um, I'm still a fan. At Dateline, we spend a lot of time with the people in our stories. And long after those hours have aired, I often end up staying in touch with some of those we've spoken with. Kathy Sultani and I have been texting back and forth during the COVID-19 lockdown. She's enjoying some time with family. I don't believe in closure. By now, you know this. Gallery's parents, Mona Ray and Ebrahim, definitely do not have anything like closure. You can see it, and for sure, you can hear it. You know, when I laugh... My laughing is changed. It's not like... Not like before. before. No. I'm guessing that the reason Gallery wanted to help so many people is because the two of you taught her that's the right thing to do. Hmm. I'm guessing that came from yeah. you. That came from the two of you. That's who she was. Yeah. When I was angry and she told me I am like you really and she was mm -hmm. Corey Beavers continues to deal with a double loss his girlfriend and his twin some of his grief has subsided and now he focuses on his studies and his family. And then out of the blue, the pain can rise up again. It's never really over. No. There's a lot of times that like, I see something um, that I just like think of, that I wish I could tell him about that. Or just think like, how excited he might be to hear this. 
and he's not there. Shirley, the rescuer, lives a quiet life, a watchful mother, even to those who aren't technically her own, like Nazreen. I've seen a change in her since, in the years since she was, she's been able to get out and enjoy life and not be um, held prisoner by her own family, have an opportunity to have an actual life. You still think of this ring as your daughter-in-law? Yes. Sometimes at the end of a story, you hope it makes sense somehow. Well, this one is pretty hard to understand. Investigators solved the love-money-pride puzzle. The pieces came together, and justice was done. That said, both these cases, both these murders, defy any attempt to make sense of them. There's a quote from Voltaire I always think about at the end of a murder case at the time when we supposedly know everything that happened. To the living, we owe respect. To the dead, we owe only the truth. Well, now we have the truth. And I hope we've helped you respect the living. Motive for Murder is brought to you by Dateline and NBC News. From Dateline, Ann Priceman is producer. Emily Wickwire is our additional producer. Allison Orr is senior producer. And Adam Gorfain is senior broadcast producer. Liz Cole is executive producer. David Corvo is senior executive producer. From Neon Hum Media, Audrey No and Mary Knopf are producers. Natalie Wren is associate producer. Catherine St. Louis is editor. Jonathan Hirsch is executive producer. Original music, sound design, and mixing by Andrew Epen. Additional sound design by Artine Aratunians. Additional production support from Nick White, Carla Green, and Mark Bush. <laughs>